0: Hello, and welcome to Benjamin May McKay's Talk To Me. I'm your host, Benjamin, and joining me on the show today is star of John... ...Jay in the current production of The Last Confession, which I'll also be reviewing later in the show. But first, here's my chat with Stuart Milligan. Now, this was recorded in a cafe, so please do forgive the background noise. Here's that chat. Enjoy.
1: Welcome to the show, and thank you for joining me today. Well, Thanks a lot, it's good to be here.
0: Now, you're currently on tour with The Last Confession, mm-hmm. but what inspired you to become an actor?
1: Oh, wow. Um, let's think. Uh, going back many, 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 many years, um, when I, I did a little bit of acting when I was a kid, but I didn't really think much about it. And when I went to university, um, I went to the university, uh, uh, West, Nebraska-Western University in Lincoln, Nebraska. And uh, when I went there, I uh, was a history major uh, when I began. And then one guy, I remember, a teacher said to me, um, if you want a place to meet girls, uh, do the freshman play and so they were doing Tartuffe, as I recall and um, so I uh, volunteered, I was on the crew <laughs> and uh, <clears throat> that was kind of my introduction to collegiate theater and then over the years I began to do more and more acting and uh, summer stock and stuff like that so by the time I graduated uh, I was a theater arts major and from there left the university and went to um, the southeast of, our, of the United States. Did dinner theater and that sort of thing. I ended up at the Actors Theater in Louisville. And then I went to New York. So I think I kind of fell into it in a way. I didn't have ambitions, particularly as a kid, to become an actor. It was just one of those things.
0: Mm-hmm. And you've been lucky enough to work in various meetings, mm-hmm. stage, film, TV, radio. Which is your favorite?
1: I, ooh, I think it depends on on, uh, on what it is really I mean all of them are fun television is, is great uh, if it's a good script and you've got a good, you're working with good people um, but then you know at the moment I'm doing this play and uh, enjoying it and um, I think it really does depend very much on on uh, the quality of the work you're doing the people you're working with um, The thing about theatre, of course, is it is very time-intensive and it's repetitious. Uh, One of the nice things about working on television is that it moves along quite quite quickly and it's not repetitious. So so in an ideal world, I think I prefer TV almost to anything else. Mm.
0: And do you find any of the mediums more challenging than others?
1: Um, Not really. I think think if you're doing... uh, I think if you're doing a film where um, you are on location somewhere, uh, and you're you're doing like say night shoots, uh, where you go to work at five o'clock at night and you come back at four a.m., uh, it's it's pretty brutal. Um, but as far as technically, it, I mean, it really does depend. I mean, the theater is quite difficult to do if you're not if you're not comfortable with it, mm. technically comfortable with it. I don't think. But I don't think that, uh, again, it really does depend on what you're faced with, what you've been asked to do, you know.
0: And I suppose within theatre you've done both musicals and straight plays. So do you have a, a favourite or do you find one easier than the other?
1: Musicals are hard work, I'll tell you that. Really hard work. Um, <laughs> you, uh, uh, it's a full-on day. And it's not a fun, but it's, it's hard work and uh, I mean I've done lots of musicals in my time in fact I, I was in Oklahoma at the National Theatre with a guy named Hugh Jackman who played Curly I don't know what happened to him I have no idea good luck to him but uh, uh, so I've done a lot of musicals in my time because musicals are you know, in terms of uh, employment uh, is it for an actor if you can do them you'll be asked to do them mm. you know and uh, you wouldn't want to do them all the time, but uh, we have several people in our cast um, who are musical theater people. John O'May done a lot of musicals in his time in Australia. Um, we have several, several guys to do it. Do you have a favorite musical then? I suppose you've done quite a few. I, mean, I assume you've seen quite a few. Yeah, I, 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 I really, really love doing Jersey Boys. I liked the music, and I just liked the way it was put together. I really enjoyed that. Oklahoma was a big thrill to do because it was. It, it also helps if these things are hits. If they're big hits, then you're playing sold-out audiences and people are going crazy every night. Um, that that it's it, it's a huge rush of of energy that surges through the theater, um, which is very different than doing a doing a straight play. You don't get that kind of bounce.
0: And as we've talked about a bit, on tour with The Last Confession at the moment. Yeah. So how did you get the role?
1: I um, was called by the original director, David Jones, who's, who's dead. And uh, he called me, or he called my agent. My agent called and said, there's this play, Do you want to read it? And I read it, and it was a, it was a good play, I thought. I didn't think my part was uh, big enough. But um, David Jones was directing it, and he's a well respected, venerated director who was directed. Uh, he was back directing up in Stratford in, in England. Um, he directed O'Toole, I mean, he, way, way back. O, um, Olivier, all of these guys, he was around in those days. So that would have been an exciting thing. I was up in uh, um, Scotland working up in Scotland, I was doing a film up there, so I was in Edinburgh, and um, my agent said, can you fly down to London at the weekend to meet David Jones, and I kind of went, yeah, okay, and then that particular weekend, it snowed in London, and uh, with the British being the British, there was like an inch of snow, the town shut down, London shuts down, they, they shut down the, the airport, everything gets to completely shut down. And the trains, were a bit, the trains were a bit funny as well. So I um, uh, decided, because I wasn't sure whether I could get back, I had to sort of say, listen, guys, um, I can't come down for this. So David Jones then said, oh, well, that's too bad, never mind. And I kind of went, yeah, just one of those things, and kind of got on with it. And he uh, went to my website, looked at my showreels that I've got, and and said, "I'm gonna hire him." So I actually never met him until we did the read through the first day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I've worked with David before and so I knew the act some of the actors that I'd been working with and uh, uh, but that was seven years ago.
0: That's a fairly unique casting process I mean
1: yeah, yeah I mean it, it, it hardly ever happens like that but every once in a while, the longer you work, the better known you are, the, the more likely it is you're going to be offered jobs mm. without actually having to read for them, or you might not even meet anybody. They might just talk to you on the phone or something like that. I mean, it's. it's um, but theater, particularly, is quite. They quite like um, uh, to meet you, I think.
0: Mm. Yeah? Yeah. And what's the rehearsal process like for a tour of this scale?
1: This particular rehearsal, <clears throat> they had to get all the actors over. Australian actors had to come over, and the Canadian actors had to come over. So they put them up. Um, we had four weeks. Now, David had done the show before, I had done the show before. Um, Bernie Lloyd had done the show before, and Richard O'Callaghan had done the show before. So the four of us were kind of revisiting roles that we'd played four, uh, seven years ago. So we had we kind of knew the territory where we were. The rest of the guys started from scratch, and of course, with a play like The Last Confession, which is about the Vatican, you have to do, uh, there has to be some research, then and there has to be some, we spent time with um, a monsignor talking about the practicalities of genuflecting, uh, the practicalities of, of, of etiquette, mm. papal etiquette, what you would do in, in the Vatican, and so on and so forth, and very important for us, because it had to look right for us. Um, but about four weeks, and then we headed off to Toronto. Ooh.
0: And I suppose putting everyone up in Australia on you know various legs of the tour, is that a logistical nightmare?
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, it took them over a year, I think, to uh, work out how they were going to put this all together and how it was going to work, because you're moving 23 people from city to city. You can imagine logistically. It's, it's And we're not just going down the road either. I mean, oh. we're going from Toronto, L.A., L.A., Perth, Perth, Brisbane, Brisbane, Adelaide, Adelaide, Melbourne, <laughs> Melbourne, Sydney. I have to say that's the only
0: time ever that an actor set a tour from L.A. to Perth. Yeah.
1: <laughs> it, was a, it was quite a culture shock for everybody, I think, probably, when we, got to, when we left L.A.
0: <laughs> and how much of the play is based on fact?
1: Well, a lot of it. He's <clears throat> based on fact. But what is not factual is the implication that um, John Paul I uh, was in some way or another assassinated. Now there are books out there, A Thief in the Night is one by David Yalla, that conjectures that he was assassinated um, either by the church itself or by the, by the mob. Now... There is no evidence to support that, and most people that know anything about it will say that what's more likely is that he was, he was um, uh, worked to death. Mm. Um, they didn't like him, and he was a threat to uh, the bank, he was a threat to um, the hard-line conservatives in the church. So, there were people who wished him ill, I'm no doubt, but I don't think he was actually murdered. But but it's factual.
0: And I suppose, because the play gives those implications, have you met with any real, I suppose, criticism of the way that the play deals with that? And I'm not saying it deals with it in a negative way, but I'm sure there are people who would find <coughs> that concept almost offensive
1: of sorts. I, I guess so. I mean, we don't. We haven't run into that um, at all. I mean, there are. We're not making a documentary. This is this is a drama. Mm. Therefore, um, there are some we take liberties with conversations. And, and you know, if you if you're writing a play about this particular thing, what you want is you sometimes have to mash together incidences. So that if somebody begins to say, "Well, that couldn't have happened," or "That didn't happen," you say, "Well, no. These are two different events that we've mashed into one thing." Mm. Um, and that's really important. to Remember, I think people, if people, are, you know, would would challenge um, the the events or the meetings because some people never met that are that actually in the play meet and talk. So, yeah, I mean, but I, we haven't had any kind of theo, theological blowback at all. That's that's
2: quite impressive. No, I, suppose, yeah.
1: I mean, people just kind of accept. It. It's a long time ago. This is back in mm. 1973. So, long and, time ago.
0: And uh, with your character Bishop Marcinkus, mm-hmm. did you do any research onto his sort of, I suppose, personal background or his work oh, background yeah. prior to playing
1: the role? Oh yeah, I mean, he, there's lots and lots about him. Lots of it. I mean, he's quite a piece of work. There's some. There's some. Uh, there are some anecdotes about him <clears throat> where um, at one point he went to. It's a fascinating character. Because he was, uh, he was, um, uh, he was a very quite low-ranking uh, person in the church. He was, he was a bishop, um, so practically everybody he worked with was um, higher up in terms of being archbishops or being cardinals. Mm. Um, he was. He spoke fluent Italian. He was a bodyguard for a while. He took a bullet for uh, um, Pope Paul. Someone tried to assassinate him, and he stood in the way of it. He, um, he 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 was called the Pope's gorilla, and around the Vatican because he was an enforcer. Uh, he was head of the Vatican Bank, which he was. More money was laundered through the Vatican Bank during his reign than any other time. Billions of dollars. Um, he once went into um, he once went into a big bank in New York, I believe, with cash, millions, a couple of million of cash, and was talking to this guy who put his feet up, smoking a cigar, and uh, saying he wanted this money um, invested, blah, 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 and they threw him out because it was illegal what he was suggesting they do. He uh, had, had a Vatican passport so that the FBI couldn't arrest him. Um, After the scandal, the the Ambrosiano scandal, Calvi was ended up hung under Blackfriars bridge, just like Godfather III. Calvi was ended up hung on Blackfriars bridge with $16,000 in each pocket, which was basically a warning. It was a calling card from the mob saying, back off. He ended up back in Chicago. They promoted him to Archbishop. He was in Chicago for many years. And then uh, retired into um, Arizona. Now about his days.
0: Yeah, now the play doesn't obviously cover a lot of that. No. But from what the play does talk about, how much of that is real? From uh, what you've researched.
1: Oh, it's all true. I mean, you know, there were there were there were there were stories about two two priests went to Rome Airport and they were stopped and they were searched and both of them had attaché cases and both of them had about $200,000 in cash. <clears throat> and the uh, customs officer said, well, where did you get this and what is this? And They were headed to Geneva. And they said, all they said was, we're not talking at all, call Bishop Marcinkus in the Vatican. And they sat there and didn't say a word. Marcinkus came to the airport uh, with some papers that they got drawn up the police and they let him go. They went back to the Vatican. So all of these stories are true. Um, <clears throat> how how deeply implicated he was in terms of w- what he decided to do and what was decided for him mm. I don't know, I mean there's a lot of story. like I say though, there's tons of information about him. And the show has been on
0: tour for quite a while mm. now where has given you the warmest welcome or the biggest welcome?
1: Well, I, um, every city has been different um uh, every city and so um, we, we, we did very well in Toronto The audiences loved us in Toronto or loved, they loved the play uh, and then I, th- I wasn't sure about LA what that was going to be like I thought because it's not really a theater town I wasn't sure how they were going to receive the play, they absolutely adored it it was a real surprise and we were in the Amundsen Theater which is huge right next to the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion, they used to have the Oscars there it's vast yeah, absolutely vast no pressure at all yeah huge theatre and so and that, and that was really challenging for us Perth kind of grew I think over the over the time we were there and Brisbane again was a very big theatre we are at QPAC yeah. yeah and that's a massive um, theatre which we didn't do too badly I think we did pretty well in fact towards the end of the run we were only there for a week we ended up with I think we had a couple of shows at the end there where there were 2,000 people there. Which that's, is for, that's crazy for a, for a straight play. And then here we've been sold out. Mm. And so each city has been different, as as will Melbourne and Sydney, they're all different.
0: And how much do you think that names like yourself and David and, you know, the names of the actors sell the play, or is the play selling itself from its reputation?
1: Well, well David's name certainly sells things, I don't think I do, but David... Uh, David's name, but you have to put somebody above the marquee in a way with a play like this. Mm. It's such a big part. It's such such a, a tour de force performance. You have to have somebody quite well known to play the part. And David absolutely is a draw. Absolutely. In fact, he's a draw in places where we weren't sure he was going to be a draw. Like at Los Angeles, we didn't know... He's very popular in Toronto. People like Poirot a lot and knew his work there. But but LA, we weren't sure. Again, he did really well. So you have to have, you couldn't, you couldn't tour a play like this into these big venues without somebody like him. Mm.
0: Well, I mean, you say that you don't sell a play, but Jonathan Creek is actually bigger in Australia than it is in the UK.
1: It was, I, I get stopped a lot. <laughs> it's quite funny. Uh, I, and, and it has it, amused me and just walking along the street people will stop me and, and, and talk to me and stuff and um, I wasn't prepared for that at all I thought that was quite a bit. I got off a plane in Perth having flown from um, uh, LA and I think one of the first things that happened was we got off the plane and we went through the gate to get our car to go to the aer- the, the hotel and this woman came up to me and said oh my god can you sign this and I kind of went yeah sure I mean, she was talking about Jonathan Creek you know like I just put that down to a random event because I, I, I do get stopped in lots of places um, usually but not all the time um, and but here definitely <laughs> it's hilarious
0: now what's the most difficult part of being on a big tour like this that goes on for months and months
1: um I think it's probably the the, the it's fun to learn a new city, definitely. But it's but it's kind of um, it's difficult to you have to the practicalities are the thing that kind of drags you down. You have to find the grocery store. You have to find where where the theater is. You have to find out how to get there. Um, now all of this stuff is provided for you in a way, the information. But each city you have to learn in a way, um, and you know some cities to be perfectly honest, are more interesting to be in than other cities. It's just a fact of life. And, um, uh, you know, and, and like, it's difficult. If you're in LA, it's difficult if you don't drive. It just is. So there are these little kind of practicality things, but in the main, the challenges, it gets old. You know, you're in a hotel, you're in these, you're in your apartment, and after a while, well, how much time have we got left? Six weeks. By the end, by the end of this six weeks, I'll be ready to go home. Mm. I think.
0: <laughs> so, what can audiences expect when coming to see *The Last Confession*?
1: Uh, well, what you'll get is a wonderful central performance from David Suchet. Uh, you get that very rare thing in the theater these days, which is uh, lots of characters on stage at once. There are. Um, what 18 speaking characters. Um, so it, you won't see that kind of play very often anymore. People don't write that kind of play anymore uh, with lots of people on stage, lots of pe- lots of characters. Um, the play discusses pol- politics, the play discusses the morality of the church in terms of banking, in terms of faith, in terms of what the, what the churches should be about and what they what they are about in fact. And and these massive institutions, these massive corporations like the Catholic Church, um, which has money, property, you know, has huge influence over the lives of people all over the world. And that's what the play is about. And it's a it's a murder mystery. It's it's about who killed who done it. And it is a wonderful play. And it's a good play. Now
0: I, I couldn't leave without bringing up Jonathan Creek for a little bit longer. Okay. Uh, now you played Adam Klaus for quite a few years. Yeah. How did that role come okay. about for you?
1: Well, I was. Um, uh, they had done a pilot, and they had done I think four eps with Tony Head. Uh, and Tony. Um, then got a gig in L.A. Uh, doing Buffy. Where he, I can't remember what was his, what was his character's name? I can't remember. Name. He played the librarian uh, in Buffy. And uh, so he left, and then uh, they were looking around, and then I met David David Renwick, and um, we chatted for a while. And I read, and and I didn't really know. To be perfectly honest with you, I didn't know anything about the series at all, and. Um, <clears throat> And so, I, you know, he told me about the part. And anyway, I got cast, which I was delighted about. And then um, I, it, it, I mean, it was uh, seven years is a lifetime in television. It's a lifetime. Um, I always assumed that we would do probably maybe one series, maybe two series, depending on how it goes. Mm. But we went through, we, we had many changes of, of women. You know, we started off with Caroline Quentin, you know, and then we went, we just moved down the line with different people. Julia Sawala came in and, and did a bit, and then um, Sheridan Smith. And then it's, we stopped in 2003 after going for seven years, and um, we had a ball. But, but David said, look, I think I'm going to call it a day on it. And nobody nobody was upset. Everybody kind of went, well, you know what? We've had a great time. And Alan had projects and everybody was kind of ready to get back to do other things. And, um, and I sort of forgot about it. And then in 2008, so five years later, out of the blue, I mean completely out of the blue, I get a phone call saying David wants to do a, has written a, a Christmas special for Jonathan Creek. And I thought it was a joke. But what, in fact, had happened was, was that he had, pit- he had been pitching an entirely different program to the BBC. And uh, the pitch had gone well, I think. And then they said, have you got anything else? And as a joke, David Remick went, well, <laughs> I don't know. I could <laughs> I could write another Jonathan Creek, I suppose. or something." And they went, yeah, that would be a great idea. <laughs> so that's how he got. So we did two um, specials mm. after that. <clears throat> it was great to work, everybody, and interestingly, such a tight little unit. We had, from the time that we finished the series in 2003 to the series being picked back up in 2008, we still had the same cameramen, we still had the same prop guys, we still had the same sound operators, the, and, and the producers had changed, but, but uh, we had the same crew, virtually, because everybody loved being on it. So it was really special.
0: It would have been. and was there ever any doubt that you would come back for it I mean it was a very on-off project years and years. We'd
1: never it never occurred to me it would never occur to me say no it's too much fun to do to be honest with you um, and, and um, I, I was very lucky to be a part of it really very lucky.
0: So you've also worked on other notable British programs like Midsummer Murders and Doctor Who What's been your favorite on-screen project to do?
1: That's a good question. That's a really good question. Um, I think recently, most recently, um, I just finished a a series for ABC called The Assets with Jodie Whittaker, which we shot in Lithuania, which was about the CIA. And that was great fun to do. It was a very big project. It was about, it was eight eps. It was difficult to do, difficult conditions. But we had so much fun shooting it. And so that was, that was a lot of fun. <clears throat> in terms of just kind of doing something that everybody really enjoys watching is Doctor Who. I mean, that was, that was really fun. So I, had, I got to wear prosthetics and we were on the, you know, and the, and they treat you great down there, the Doctor Who guys uh, down there in Cardiff. Have you
0: been asked on the, uh, the convention circuits yet? I've
1: done one or two. They've asked <laughs> me to come along. And uh, in fact, I was flown out to LA and um, I couldn't quite understand. I didn't realize how big the brand was. But I went to LA and there were 6,000 people. Who, what are they called? Huvians. Huvians. Hoovians. 6,000 Hoovians. Um, and it, they were delightful. It was delightful. It was mad. It was delightful. Really fun.
0: Right, well, finally, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to become an actor?
1: Um, I, <laughs> I would advise them. Um, to make sure you have a a fallback position. Um, I think that's really important, is to have other things going on in your life. I don't mean in terms necessarily of vocation, uh, because needs must. I mean, people will do what they have to do, but I think if you're a young person and you're going into, into this business, you do need plan B and plan C, not to go into it thinking all I'm going to do is this. You are, in, if you are in college, stay in college um, and learn other skills and other things you can do to work around the fact that you're not always going to be working and you're not always going to be busy, and that's really important, I think, so that you don't lose you don't lose altitude and you don't lose enthusiasm for the work.
0: Well, thank you very much for your time today and good luck on the rest of the tour. Well,
1: thank you very much. It's been a pleasure.
0: That was my chat with Stuart Milligan. Now, as this is a very special episode, you're also about to hear my chat with Richard O'Callaghan. And then after that, I'll give you my review of their show, The Last Confession, as well as my normal movie reviews, DVD reviews from Roadshow and Madman. So before we get on with our next chat, don't forget to check out all our sponsors, Mad Zombie Collectibles, Roadshow Entertainment, Madman Entertainment, and Palace Nova Cinemas, and all of their details are on our site. Now, here's my chat with Richard O'Callaghan, who plays Pope John Paul in The Last Confession. Enjoy. Welcome to the show, and thank
2: you for joining me today. I'm very excited and privileged to be here. It's a great... I mean, it's such a privilege for us to... You know, do a kind of like a tour to places we would never normally visit no, from it's, Britain.
0: Yeah, a pleasure to have
2: you here, oh, as nothing does visit us.
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, you are touring in The Last Confession at the oh, moment. Yes. But what inspired
2: you to become an actor? Well, I was never inspired to become an actor. I had a mother who was an actress and who did quite well. And, uh, well, in fact, she did very well in England, and I, my father, who I hardly knew, was also an actor before the war. But I tried very hard not to be an actor, but I was so bad at everything else I tried, that eventually I got, in, I got into a drama school in order to pass the time, really, to try and work out what I was going to do with my life, and I turned out, it turned out well for me. It, it certainly it. did. Yeah. And you've worked in TV, radio, I've film and stage? I've worked in TV, stage. radio, I've done a fair amount of those things, mostly stage. I've done a few films. I'd like to have done a few more. But uh, films... Like, do you get the carry-on films out We do. You? They love the carry-on oh, well, on them films. I've done two too. carry-on films way back in my when I was a much younger man. And they were fun to do. But um, stage work seems to be the main thing these days. So would that be your favourite then? The thing about doing stage, which is... I mean, I'll take whatever I get. I'm not, I can't be choosy. So, <laughs> but the thing about stage is that you, if you have a good part in a, in a good play, there's a kind of a relationship between the actor and the audience, or the actors and the audience, that, is very, that can be so special that it's, uh, it has great meaning for you and hopefully for them as well. Whereas if you're doing television or if you're doing film, for, normally it's all done out of sequence in any case, and also you have no feedback from an mm. audience you might get it later on, when the get, television gets shown later on, people might say, oh, I really enjoyed that. But you don't get that immediate response. And so for, and because actors, I think, play off that, you, you can tell if an audience are with you or not. And if they're with you, it's like they give you, if you're doing it well, it's like they build a kind of a, a blast off zone for you to take off from like a rocket. And, um, in the old days, there were lots of old actors who used to say to me when I was young, there's no such thing as a bad audience, you know. No, no, you can't say that, there's no such thing. Well, there, you mustn't... I agree with them in the sense that you shouldn't really spend your life worrying about whether they're good or bad, but I know that if you've got a good audience, it's like having this place, it's, it gives you some, and if they're not a good audience, it's like trying to, sh- like a rocket trying to take off and blasting into a marsh, mm. and it just, all the energy is disappearing down instead of going up. It certainly is. Yeah. Now, I want to take you back a little way oh, to, right,
0: yeah. to <laughs> 1981, and I <laughs> was very excited to learn that you were merry in my favourite adaptation of
2: The Lord <laughs> of the Rings for BBC <laughs> Radio. Yeah, How true. did that come about? Um... Well, I knew that the woman who produced it, they call it directed now, but in those days of BBC, she was called the producer, Jane Morgan, and uh, I'd worked with her a few times, and she's still around, she's a delightful lady and a very, very imaginative radio producer. And uh, she got together this extraordinary team of actors, and I was just fortunate enough to be one of them to play Mary, but I mean, if you think of that cast, with Ian Holm, who's gone on into all those other things, Stevens, Robert Stevens, who was great, Michael Horden. There were some absolutely top-notch actors, and because it was twenty-six weeks, twenty-six episodes spread out over six weeks, it worked out very well for us. It was a compact, but we did because of the. I mean, it was almost like film money from the BBC Radio, (laughs) extraordinary because we got a built-in repeat. I remember at the time, and of course, we still get royalties from that when it gets played anywhere. Mm. Whereas if you do a film or in, in the, the Carry On films, I you know, I could have earned more money selling, you know, shoelaces than. than well, as you mentioned, it was a
0: twenty-six episode. Yes, series. I wasn't in all. I was in twenty-two, I think. And that covered the three books. Yes. So, do you have a favourite one of the stories? Of those of the, the three. Lord of the
2: Rings. Well, I have to say that I ploughed through Lord. Rings as a book. I was uh, a friend of mine lent me the the three volumes, and I suppose if I was to say, I the characters I liked very much were the Ents. Mm. I liked that whole story with those massive kind of giant tree-like characters, and um, and I suppose I associated quite well with the all the. Uh, um, the little people, whatever they're called, the them. hobbits. The hobbits, yes, I like them too. But I got—I mean, it is so complicated, and the, I mean, I, I remember reading the book. You could actually go to the back and learn Elven language, and you could learn all this thing. I mean, what a remarkable man he was, um, Tolkien. Tolkien, yeah. And and interestingly, it's—I've learned since that it's it's actually a very very Catholic story. It's 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 based on. Christianity. He was a very devout Catholic, apparently, and that it's his kind of parable, if you like, about Christianity. Interestingly, certainly very interesting. Yeah, to look at you Could have a look at that. I, I certainly <laughs> shall now. I
0: actually own those on cassette. I oh, own do all you? Twenty six oh, of them wow. on cassette. Wow. Now, you've also worked in some very iconic British TV, New Tricks, Midsummer Murders and Red Dwarf. What's the experience
2: like working on such iconic shows? Well, uh, I'm going to put, let's set Red Dwarf apart for a moment. Um, New Tricks, I just, I mean, I did an episode. I knew Dennis Waterman when he was a 17-year-old lad. Uh, at the Royal Court Theatre in London. And he was uh, j- just this kind of rather wild boy who could play pinball very well in the local pub. He was an underage drinker in the pub with the rest of us. And he was a good, good lad. And i watched his career. I'd bump into him every so often. So it was very nice to go back in there and see him. And uh, Alan Armstrong I've bumped into over the years. And also, uh, what's his uh, name? Alan, what's his name? He's the wonderful guy who who plays the other cop in those three. John. James Bolham. James Bolham, who's a fantastic actor, and I've known him, I've bumped into him many, oh, a few times over the years, and I've always admired him a lot. So it was a treat to do that, but I was just with them for about maybe four or five days, that was all. New tricks, I knew, um, see, my brain, brain's gone, what's, what's the <laughs> middle um, guy? You mean with Midsummer? Yeah? Yes, um, it, Midsummer, Midsummer Murders, yes. Um, uh, uh, Nettles John, Nettles. John Nettles and I. We were, we were in some kind of production again at the Royal Court Theatre back in the 60s. and uh, So it was great to c- catch up with him again. And I had an interesting Red Herring part to play in that, b- busting around in a wheelchair. And I knew the director from before. And, I, and so that was a lot of fun. Red Dwarf. I, I know the kind of director, author of that. And... Uh, and he's, uh, so I've known him for a while and, and uh, he got me in to do some readings originally with the rest of the cast when he was trying to make, put a film together and uh, he liked what I was doing so he got me back in to play the, a character called the creator and later on to play this kind of completely lunatic um, Scuzzer, is it, it called? I can't even remember, what it is, but it's a kind of robot character who goes around wanting to kill everybody. You kill my brother. So there's that. This? And so I've done two of those. And um, they're very frantic because I've usually come in towards the end of the, that particular series. Of, and it's very short of time. And he's kind of writing and changing things as we go along. So uh, nobody, else had had, nobody else had a script except me. I was privileged because I, just, I was just coming in. So they said, well, we can give you a script that don't show the others. <laughs> And so I kind of tried to learn these lines, but they're, they're a great bunch of guys on Red Dwarf, and so is he, yeah. It was Ooh. fantastic.
0: So what would you say has been your favorite
2: program or show to work on? Are we talking television or film or? It can be anything, any, any project you've ever done. Well, I've, I have, theater has probably given me the best things. i played, I took over from, I was the original takeover part in, of, of Mozart, in uh, Amadeus in London. It had been done by other people on tour in America and places like that, but I took over from Simon Callow and we went from the National Theatre in London to the first West End production. And uh, that was the most wonderful part to get, and I worked with a fantastic actor called Frank Finlay in that, and it was directed by Peter Hall. So that was, and the music and the whole show was just, it was like being this enormous success. But that was a long time ago, you see. And I've done other plays that I've loved. I've been directed by Harold Pinter in plays with Alan Bates and things like that in London. So those to me are the kind of, the the really important parts of my life. As far as film, I've not really had any wonderful film. I've done carry-on films which were huge fun to do. And and television, I used to do a lot of one-off plays back way back when and um, but see it I've worked I've worked with Tom Stoppard on Tom Stoppard plays I've, and, and Simon Gray plays and those to me are the those are the ones that I look back on and think wow that they were meaty and they were productive and they gave me wow. huge enjoyment actually working on stage with other actors mm.
0: Now, as you've been saying, you have worked extensively in theatre, and yeah. you're
2: currently on tour with *The Last Confession*. Yes. How did this show come about for you? Well, this guy called David Jones, who I'd worked with on a Shakespeare for television back in about 1980, and who was a, a who was a fantastic guy. And out of the blue, I got a call up from my agent to go and meet him about Albino Luciani, and because uh, I don't know why he remembered me, but he he thought I and somebody might have suggested me to him. And I went and had a meeting with him in London to play the smiling Pope. And, um, and we had such a nice, good meeting that he kinda of more or less offered it to me on the spot. But, uh, so I was thrilled about that. Mm-hmm. And then it got put away, we did that in 2007 and we started at Chichester in south of England and we did a tour around about four or five theatres and then we went into the west end of London and did it there for, I think, about 12 weeks. And then David of Suchet, of course, had to come out because he was still doing all his Poirots. And uh, so it was a limited run. And I thought, well, and people, my agent at the time said, oh, it's such a shame because it's such a good part for you, you know, and, uh, but I thought, well, that's it. And suddenly out of the blue about, I suppose, nearly two years ago now, it suddenly came up again this possibility of a tour and was I interested and was I, yeah, sure. And you do play the Pope in this show. I play Pope John Paul
0: the the first. Yes. A yes. couple of Popes. Yes. Um and that's you know, he's a
2: real life inspirational sure. figure. Yes. So
0: how do you go about tackling such such a person like that?
2: Well he's a he, I mean Albino Luciani who was the he was cardinal Albino Luciani the cardinal of Venice the least likely of any of the cardinals in that conclave to be elected uh, but he was elected in 1978 and um, he was uh, he was a he was a simple very holy guy and uh, very much liked by the people who knew him he was known as the smiling pope, but the last thing he ever wanted to be was the pope. And I thought, well, that's fantastic. I think everybody who actually uh, achieves a, a position of power, like a prime minister or a king, should, the last thing they should want is to be the prime minister. The last thing, the most, the thing that they would dread being most is them running a country, because it means they don't have that terrible ambitious thing, mm. which means they could corrupt so easily and. And uh, they're not power hungry. Albino Luciani was not power hungry. And I think that's what made him so popular, really, with the people. They could see that he was just interested in being, he was humble and he was good. And those kind of qualities really appeal to me. Mm. Now, what's the rehearsal process like for a tour of this scale? Well, for me, it it was okay, apart from the traveling. I live way out of London now, so I used to have to travel up and down. It was interesting in this because this is the first time that a, a truly international commercial company has been put together. Uh, so we have guys from Canada, we have guys from Australia, we have guys from America and uh, the English guys, the British guys in the company and um, put together by uh, Paul Elliott and Duncan uh, Weldon and 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 of course helped by Tinderbox Productions with uh, Liza McLean. And, and because of Canadian equity, I gather, they were able to work with all the equities in the different companies and say, hey, let's, can't we put this, an international show together? We're a mixture. And that has been fascinating. So, first of all, on St. Patrick's Day in this year, or two or three days before that, these Australians and Canadians and a couple of Americans arrived and we met and then we started reading through and working on the production together. And we had a month in London, but no set, no costumes. We, they, we tried the costumes on. but it wasn 't for, for a month when we arrived in Toronto, which was our first where we first opened, that we had our dress rehearsal, that we were able to tech the play, you know do mm. the technical rehearsals, and I think we spent getting on for a week in Toronto at this theater the uh, Alexander, Royal Alexander Theatre in Toronto, where we put the play together for the first time and then did our first actual performances with audiences there. And it's been a kind of a joy ever since, and we've worked there for seven, six to seven weeks, went to a Los Angeles to the Armisen Theatre there, and we were there for a month, wonderful. Had a three week break, and then we came on to Perth, mm. and we've been to Brisbane, now we're in Adelaide, and we've got Melbourne and Sydney together. So it's been a, a very, and a very happy company. Very happy, co- very happy company. Mm. And seeing you're playing so many different theatres and
0: yes. very different styles of theatres like yes. the QPAC in Queensland yes. would be very different to the here. Yes. Do you rehearse the show or run over aspects of the show at each venue just to get the idea? We go
2: in, mm. we, we hardly rehearse. The, the most important thing is that the people who do all the set changes and moving the scenery and carry the pieces on and off, they come in and rehearse maybe at 2 o'clock on the day that we open and they get things sorted up so they know exactly whereabouts on stage to place things, how far they move the towers forward and backwards and forwards. We usually come in at about, if the show's at, say, 7.30, we come in at 4 or 4.30, and we get a feel of the theatre, and feel the size. I mean, to go into that QPAC in Brisbane, it's huge. It's a yeah. 2,000-seater theatre. Compared with here, or compared with Perth, which is half the size, it's just enough beautiful, and mm. one and we... And we loved it there eventually, but it's very frightening to start off with. But we don't, we just go on and we're there for an hour or two, then we have a break and then we come on and we just get on with it. Mm. And because the set is more or less the same everywhere, we we fit in very easily into that. And where has given you the biggest welcome so far? Where? Well, it's interesting, Um, I I mean, we've had a wonderful welcome here in Adelaide. They've been so, I mean, first of all, this is the first time I think we've sold pretty well every seat Mm. in in the theatre on tour. We did well in Toronto, and Toronto was very nice, but we never got full. In L.A., they're not really a theatre-going city. Not really, no. I mean, we got some very good and happy and enthusiastic people who came to L.A., but they tend not to go to the theatre a great deal. So we played to quite big, but nothing, not, not full houses anyway. Perth, that took a bit of getting used to, but they, by the time we'd finished our week there, we were there for three weeks, rather. We were there. They were really beginning to... to come in and it's a beautiful theatre in Perth. It's a wonderful, very old, 110-year-old theatre, beautiful theatre. It's slightly older than this theatre and they're very proud of it, and rightly so. And uh, so by the time we had got ourselves up and running and the audiences, the word of mouth got round and the audiences just got bigger and bigger. Brisbane, it took a little while to build that hall. We were only there for a week, but by the end we had very big houses there, almost full. And if you think that's 2,000, we were playing to 1,700 and 1,800 people a time. And uh, again, I, I think people are turned on by the play here in Australia. I think they find it very interesting. It's historical and it's intriguing. And of course, David is such a draw. You know, they love
0: David. So what can audiences expect when they come to see The Last Confession?
2: Well... I think they can expect to have their uh, made to think about something—a moment, a true moment in history—that happened in 1978, where a one pope dies, Pope Paul VI dies, and a new pope is elected. The, the least likely of all the cardinals to be elected because of the wrangling, in according to this play, the wranglings and the infighting between the different factions of political factions, if you like, of the cardinals. And eventually they choose a man, who, they're persuaded to choose this man because he is holy, he is simple, and he, is, he appeals to the public. And um, he's not a wheeler-dealer. And he's chosen, and... He's within the Vatican itself. They look down on him. They don't really appreciate him, but the people love him. And 33 days later, he dies. 33 days. That's, you know, mm. that's a bit extraordinary. And immediately that happened. In reality, the there were the people who jumped on the kind of the sensationalism bandwagon, or you know, whatever it's called. You know. The, uh, the theory that, that, uh, that somebody must have bumped rumors. him off. The rumours. The rumours started. And because of the kind of way that they, for their re- different reasons maybe, that they covered up certain things, they didn't do an autopsy and things like that, it was never discovered truly why he died. But then popes were never, very seldom was an autopsy done on popes anyway. Uh, but immediately people said, bumped off, murdered, bumped off, and maybe he was. Maybe he wasn't, no. Mm. And uh, who knows? So it's intriguing from that point of view. And it's then about the kind of the post-mortem that they hold within their own... Well, it's not the post-mortem, but whatever. Within the Vatican. Inquiry. The inquiry that they set up, a private inquiry that they set up within the Vatican, trying to work out what happened. And then the election of the new pope, who was Pope John Paul II, the first Polish pope. And, uh, and then... The, but it's really all about... The story is really from the point of view of a man called Cardinal Benelli, played by David Suchet, and he is the man who is the kind of, had been the pope maker for the, he's been, he's the most intelligent, if you like, of the Cardinals, and the one who tries to make, he's the most influential, and he wasn't there, he feels that he wasn't there to support Albino Luciani when he most needed him, and therefore it's his confession at the end, saying I was responsible for him dying.
0: Well, finally, what advice would you offer to anyone looking to become an actor?
2: Give it a go. Give it a go. I mean, I suppose it, uh, it's, I think that if, you ha- if you're good at something else as well uh, and can get, uh, can get qualifications in some other line, that you can say, right, I want to, I've got these qualifications, but it's not what I really want to do with my life. But I know that if I fail as being an actor, and it's very hard, you know, it's not an easy life being an actor, and the success rate, the dropout rate is enormous. But give it a go, and see how far you get. Go and see other productions, get to to know other actors, get to know, and see if you're enthusiastic about it. Of course, you must follow your heart and your dreams. But if you've got something you can fall back on, that will either keep you going when you're out of work and let you go back in again when when some a job does come along, or if it doesn't work out, at least you can go on being a doctor, or you can go on being a lawyer, or you can go on being, you know, a structural engineer. Then you've got that. But, uh, you know, an, an artist, somebody with an artistic streak needs to express themselves somehow. And being a a... a, a Working in a post office is, I'm sure, can be a, 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 you know, an interesting experience. But if you're longing to paint or you're longing to play some music, it's, it's, you need to be able to try and fa- look for that.
0: Okay. Well, thank you very much for your time today oh, it's and my your pleasure. wise words.
2: Thank you very much. <laughs> I don't know my my words aren't wise, <laughs> but uh, I hope I've been uh, able to pass on a few stories and things, really. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you very
0: much, Benjamin. That was my chat with Richard O'Callaghan. Now as I mentioned I was very lucky to see The Last Confession when it was in Adelaide last week and I have to say it is one of the best productions I have ever seen in Australia. The cast of 23 actors with only 18 speaking roles it is incredible, and there's no other play that I've ever seen come here with that kind of large ensemble cast, and everyone plays a specific part. You, you couldn't take any one character away from the show, and the majority of the cast are superb. Now, I did think there were a couple of minor roles who weren't brought to life as well as they could have been by the actors, but as they were only minor roles on stage for five minutes, it didn't detract from the show at all. The actors themselves were incredible. It is very rare for Australia to get such a high class of talent come and perform, and especially in cities like Perth and Adelaide and even Brisbane. So I think we are very, very lucky to see this show. David Suchet's performance is exactly what you expect it to be. Incredible. And on the night that I saw it, well, to be honest, I did see it twice. It was that brilliant. Uh, But on one of the nights I saw it, People were just screaming Poirot, and they got a standing ovation. So David still has that, that element of Poirot about him, as everyone sort of expects, but he certainly is able to break that and portray an entirely different character. Now, the first act of this play is entirely Richard O'Callaghan's, um, and he owns that first act. Um, so he does a brilliant job there, and then, of course, uh, the Pope does does die under mysterious circumstances. Uh, so and that's when David really comes into power and the whole cast I mean Stuart Milligan was fantastic he only has I think two or three scenes in the whole play but they're really his scenes and that is the great thing about this play there's a couple of consistent actors throughout and they're astounding but it's all the the sort of not quite cameo characters but some of the smaller roles not not the really minor ones but the the in the supporting cast I suppose you'd call them and they come on and have one or two scenes and they are also incredible. So if you do get the opportunity to see it in Melbourne or Sydney it is playing uh, in Melbourne for a couple of weeks at the Comedy Theatre before heading to Sydney and playing there uh, I think for about three weeks as well. So do go over and check that out as it is a truly stunning production. Now last month I was very honoured to welcome a new supporter to the show madman entertainment and they've sent me some of their fantastic dvds already and while i haven't had a chance to check them all out i'm going to give you uh, a review of some of the ones i already have now the first one that i got down to was midsummer murders season 16 part one now i am a huge fan of the midsummer murder series and while everyone was a little bit dubious about neil dudgeon taking over from the legendary john nettles he does it very well and he doesn't try and copy uh, John Nettles' performance, he brings an entirely new, it is a new character, obviously, but he does bring in new elements to the, to the leading role, which make it a very enjoyable show, and keeping that same Midsummer Murder, Murder's essence, but uh, it does leave a little bit of the, the, uh, new feeling to the show and I do very much like them and of course they are all movies Um, that's what people often forget about the series they are all 90 minutes long so breaking them up into part 1 and part 2 is a very logical thing to do Um, and I I have seen all of them um, and I've even seen you know, everyone ever to be released, and as a fan of the series, as I said, I was apprehensive to see Neil Dudgeon taking over, but I was very happy, and I think this is his second season that they've, uh, they've just started releasing, and he certainly walks in there, and he's got that same, same level of charisma, but, uh, very different character, and, uh, his wife is a very different character from Joyce, which I think is wonderful, so they do try and differentiate them, and of course he's uh, his dog Sykes, um, also adds a, a new dimension for the character, a bit, a bit more human than I think um, the, the previous Barnaby ever was. And the stories are, you know, they're a little bit corny, and some of the acting's not always up to, up to scratch, but it certainly is a wonderful DVD, and I would encourage people to go buy it, and any of the other Midsummer Murders releases that there are available. Now, the next release I'll be checking out from Madman is Jonathan Creek series five, and I thought this was very very appropriate seeing one of our guests had been on the first four and a bit seasons of Jonathan Creek now this is a is I suppose the much awaited series after many years of uh sort of specials and many years off the air as well and it did come back for I think it's three episodes, and they're not quite as good as the originals. Uh, I'm, I'm not going to lie about that, but they do have that, that humorous element that Jonathan Creek always had. I think they probably bring up the humor a little bit more than they used to now. It's produced by BBC Comedy, but I do think it is still quite enjoyable. The mysteries aren't as dark as they once were, which does, I think, bring a bit more of a family element to to the show, but it's still a very enjoyable watch, and I'm sure Jonathan Creek fans Everywhere are going to pounce on that one, so to also check that one out. And the final Mad Men release I'll be looking at for this episode is The Hound of the Baskervilles, starring Tom Baker. Now, I have to say, I was a little bit shocked about this one, because Tom Baker isn't exactly the actor you would put in uh, in a Sherlock Holmes story, but he does quite a good job. Now, obviously, he doesn't compare with Basil Rathbone or any of the other Sherlock Holmeses that we've uh, had a sort of the classic years of Holmes. I think he's better than Robert Downey Jr., though, and I'm sure I'll get criticised for saying that. Uh, He does bring a a bit more of a comic tone to the role, uh, as only Tom Baker can, and his sort of overpowering energy quite suits the, the style of the film. So I do think that Sherlock Holmes fans would be I think, pleased with how it's done, because every Sherlock Holmes is different, and Tom Baker certainly brings his own to the role, so I do think that Sherlock Holmes fans should check that out, and any Tom Baker fans, because of course it is Tom Baker pretty much being the Tom Baker version of Sherlock Holmes. So it is a very interesting release. And while it's not my favourite version of The Hand of the Baskervilles, I really do think people who like Sherlock Holmes and the original films or the original books should check it out, or fans of Tom Baker, or people just curious to see this very strange pairing. And those reviews are all thanks to Madman, our new suppliers. Now, thanks to Palace Nova Cinemas, I've also got the opportunity to check out some more movies. Now, I've uh, I've got three films since we last did a podcast. One of them is Predestination. Uh, now, this new Australian sci-fi film is predictable and lacks real emotion, but is shot beautifully. Now, I was quite disappointed with Predestination, especially after all the hype built up, but uh, I didn't like that one at all, and I'm giving that one two stars. Now, another Australian release for this month is Felony. Now, it is, it is an intense thriller, but the ending is rather unfulfilling. I'll give that one three stars. The last review I've got for today is Magic in the Moonlight, Woody Allen's latest film. And it is a wonderful movie, but maybe, and for once I'm actually saying, this, maybe it moves a little too fast. And I'm giving that one four stars, but for all my full reviews, you can go over and check them out on preacherspodcast.net, and then the movie reviews section. And that's thanks to Palace Nova Cinemas. Now, while Roadshow's September releases are yet to arrive, I do just want to remind you of their wonderful Orbis releases, and there are some truly some stellar ones in there. Uh, There's wonderful family-based action adventure, The Musketeers, Time of Our Lives series 2 for some great Australian drama, uh, Nashville, which has been one of my favourite releases in a long time, it's a great, uh, great show, it's an American show as well, set uh, in the country town of Nashville, where the country music thrives, and it's got some wonderful original songs in there. Uh, the Tunnel is a very interesting British and French drum, which I do, it's based off the bridge, I think it is quite a, quite a thrilling, intense drama that people should uh, definitely have a look at. Transcendence is another fantastic movie release from Roadshow last month, and that stars Johnny Depp and Morgan Freeman. And there's also some other early releases like Nebraska, Winter's Tale, Three Days to Kill, and Out of the Furnace, which I should thoroughly recommend you check out. So there's a ton of Roadshow releases, and I look forward to, by the next podcast, bringing you some of their September release reviews and our other supplier, don't forget mad zombie collectibles now they've got an online store and obviously their link is in the show notes to the podcast so you can go and check them out and they have a ton of wonderful collectible material some of my favorites are the pop vinyl figures and i know they are very popular and they've got wonderful marvel ones I know some of the ones that i've been lucky enough to get so far the the wolverine fury star lord and captain america from the winter soldier so i'd go and they've also got a store in uh, in Rundle Mall, it's on Twin Street, uh, just a bit down there, and it's a wonderful new large store. Now, a lot of Australians will be familiar with the TV show Sean McCarlos, Nat as Hell. Now, for our second September podcast, I'll be bringing you a chat with Francis Greenslade, one of the actors from the show, and that'll be out towards the end of September. But I've been Benjamin May McKay, your host. My guest today was Stuart Milligan and Richard O'Callaghan. And don't forget to check out all our wonderful suppliers and supporters whose links are in the show notes. And for the full movie reviews, check out the website www.preacherspodcast.net. And you can follow us on Twitter at Preachers Podcast or like the Facebook page Preachers Podcast online and on stage. As I said, I've been your host, Benjamin Mamake. See you next time.